thank you for being here. Thank you for the opportunity once again to open the Word of God to you. I want to tell you a little story about something that happened to me. And I was over in Africa, my daughter's wedding. And we, uh, we went for a walk in what they call the Grand Marché, the big market. Now that's not, that's not like um, a touristy market. The Grand Marché is, is where the people, the, the ordinary Africans, buy and sell and shop. And, shop. and I'm walking through there. And uh, as you do when you're walking through the market, you get the munchies. And my daughter said to me, oh, you, you know, grab, she said, I'll grab some cash. I'll get you something to eat. Okay. Now, if you know me, I'm, I'm, I'm game to try most interesting things. And so she grabbed a, well, about a 50,000 uh, Central African franc note that 50,000 Central African franc, that's, that's worth about $2.50 right, in our money. Off she goes. She comes back with this thing of paper. She says, here, try these. Deep fried locust with chilli and, and garlic. It's actually not half bad. There was a little bit much chilli for my taste, but crunchy. And that was my introduction to locusts. And that's one of the things we'll be looking at today. So before we go any further, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now you might open our hearts and our minds. Teach us, Lord, the things that you have us in your word. Bless us, we pray, that we may better understand the truths you have for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, locusts. They're very crunchy. Right? That's the first thing you sort of noticed about them. Um, but anyhow, I was introduced to the locusts. Now, when you hear about locusts, you probably think, oh, you know, that's, a, that's something you might see on Landline or one of those country you know, shows about problems that someone's got out in the bush. Locusts. In Africa, it's still a real serious problem. And in the time of the prophet Joel, it was a really serious problem. You did not, it was no joke. It was a real trouble and a worry to people. How big a problem? Just to get you an idea of what a locust swarm is like. In 1969, that's not that long ago, 1969, they measured a locust swarm. Okay, they were able to get, a pl get planes up and, and measure it. It covered 5,000 square kilometres. One swarm. 5,000 square kilometres and it was estimated that it contained 30 billion locusts. That's between five and six locusts for every man, woman and child on the face of the earth was in one locust swarm in Africa. That's a problem. That's an issue. How big's a locust? Well, they're you know about yay big. They they grow up to about uh, forty-five millimeters long. You know that's about two inches in the old money. You you know they're they're not small. And uh, they were eaten not just in in Africa today. They were eaten in uh, in Jesus' time. You know that yeah, famous guy ate locusts. Um, in Mark, Gospel of Mark, the start of Mark, we have 
in uh, Mark 1 to 6. Mark, Mark 1, 1 to 6, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the, ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem, and all were baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and a girdle of skin about his loins, and he did eat locusts and wild honey. Locusts. Yeah. He ate locusts and wild honey. I don't know if that's a balanced diet, but it seemed to do him pretty well. So we have the locust. You can eat them, but mainly you curse them. Funny thing, the, the rabbi said it was the one thing you could eat without asking a blessing for it. Because why would you ask a blessing on a curse? Oh, I thought, well, that's, you know, Rabbi's got a point there. Why would you ask a blessing on something that's a curse? It was cursed. Why? Incidentally, if you want to check that it's, it's okay to eat locusts, Leviticus 11.22 says, yes, you can eat locusts. So it's, it's there. Why was it a curse? Why? Because... It was a symbol of a punishment from God. Right? Remember, locusts were one of the plagues of Egypt. One of the ten plagues was a plague of locusts that ate everything. And we're going to have a look about this. Now, we're starting in Joel chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. You know, normally I give you a little biography about this, the, the prophet, about when he was born and when he was... did. Yeah. No. You know why? Because we don't know. We don't know when he was born. We don't know when he preached. We don't really know anything about him. We think he was before the exile, but we're not even really certain on that. We know nothing about this guy his dad's name was Pethuel and okay that's it not where he lived or when he preached or anything but this is the word of the Lord that came to Joel the son of Pethuel he says hear this ye old men give ear anybody here qualify there hear this old men give ear all ye inhabitants of the land Hath this been in your days or even in the days of your fathers? Tell ye your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. He's saying, I'm going to tell you something that's going to get passed down through the generations. Okay. Then he says, that which the palmer worm hath left, the locust hath eaten. And that which the locust hath left, hath the canker worm eaten. And that which the, ca the canker worm hath left, hath the caterpillar eaten. Now, to us, they sound like different insects, right? But when you look in the, the Hebrew words there, they're actually describing the four different stages of a locust. We call them... You know, we say there's nymphs and hoppers and flyers and swarms. That's how the entomologists, they're bug people, that's how they divide them up. Uh, okay? The little nymphs that just walk, then they molt and they change and they become a hopper and travel in groups and then they molt again and they have little short stubby wings and they fly a little way. Then they molt again and they have big wings and they fly in huge swarms. And he's describing here that... This plague, it didn't just fly in. See, normally the plagues of locusts, they fly in. But this one had started on the borders of Israel and it started with the little hoppers and was working its way across the nation and destroying everything in its path. He, he describes that 
in, in verse 5, he says, Awake, ye drunkards, and weep and howl. Why? Because the locusts have eaten all the grapes. There's no wine. There's no wine for the drunks. It's an unusual way of putting it, but imagine a situation where a drunk gets up in the morning and he can't get any wine because the locusts have eaten all the grapes. Then he says, and, uh, in verse 7, he says, They've laid my vine waste. They've barked my fig tree. In the last part of the verse, he says, The branches thereof are made white. He says, You go out to your trees, and not only have they eaten the fruit, and they've eaten the leaves, they've eaten the bark off the trees, and they've gone from being brown to just white, bare wood. This is a devastation. And he says, lament, verse 8, like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. Now, pastor was talking about weddings. Can you imagine the mourning of a bride who is widowed on her wedding day? How would she be mourning? How would she be heartbroken and distressed? That's what the lament is like in the nation like a bride widowed on her wedding day. Then he goes, we thought it was bad for the drunks. In verse 9, the meat offering and the drink offering is cut off from the house of the Lord. Why? There's none left. The locusts have eaten all the grain and all the vines and, they, and the oil, the, the olive trees, they can't even pour out a meat offering and a drink offering to God because there's nothing there. This is getting, he's trying to get people to understand. And then they're all nodding because he's describing something that they know very well. This has happened to them. And he's talking to them about it. Then he, he talks in verse 11, he says, how, how the, the husbandsmen, the vine dressers, the farmers are ashamed. There's no wheat. There's no barley. It's all gone. The vine in verse 12 is dried up. The tree languisheth. The pomegranate, the palm tree, the apple tree, the trees of the field, they're gone. Now, anybody been close to... Some of you have probably been up close and personal to a palm tree. Those palm tree leaves, they're tough, right? They're really hard and tough. Didn't matter. Locusts ate them too. Everything is gone. Nothing is left. You say, well, these people had a problem. Yep. But you're saying they had an agricultural problem? And Joel is saying to them, no, no, you're missing the point. This isn't an agricultural problem. This is a spiritual problem. Why? Have a look over in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy 28. In verse 38 of Deuteronomy 28, it says, he's talking, uh, it's verse 37, thou shalt become an astonishment, a proverb, a byword among all nations, whither the Lord shall lead thee, thou shalt carry much seed out into the field and shall gather but little in, for the locust shall consume it. In Deuteronomy, the people are warned by Moses, if you go against the Lord your God, if you deny him and turn to false gods, one of the plagues he will bring on you is locusts. Ah, same sort of thing, in fact, is found in 1st Kings chapter 8 verse 37 8:37 1st Kings 8:37 Solomon says 
If there be in the land famine, if there be pestilence, blasting, mildew, locust, or if there be caterpillar. Uh, He uses two of those expressions that Joel uses, saying these are the punishments that God will bring on the nation if they refuse to follow the Lord. So Joel is getting to these people and he says, listen, you haven't got a locust problem. You've got a spiritual problem. So he calls for national repentance. In verse 13, back in Joel, Gird yourselves and lament, ye priests. Howl, ye ministers of the altar. Come, lie all night in sackcloth, ye ministers of my God. In verse 14, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of your Lord, the Lord your God and cry unto the Lord. He's saying what you need is repentance. That was the problem. See, locusts to the people of Israel were not an agricultural problem. They were a spiritual problem. Now, what what could they do against locusts? They couldn't do anything. The only thing they could hope for and pray for, that the Lord would bring a wind from off the, the desert and blow them out into the Mediterranean Sea as they were flying. That was the only thing that could save them. You know, our nation says, oh, we've got a financial problem. No, we don't. We have a spiritual problem. They say we have a climate emergency. No, we don't. We have a spiritual problem. We have a health care crisis. No, we don't. We have a spiritual problem. We have a generation of leaders and people who've said, we don't want God interfering in our lives. And God now says, well, how's that working out for you? Hmm. Spiritual problems. I I could keep going on that, but that's not actually the main thrust of the, the message, just to add that in extra, but... People think they have problems with many things in their lives, but what they really have is spiritual problems. All these other problems could get sorted out if people first got their hearts right with God. All those other things could be fixed. You know, you think about healthcare, just just to digress for a moment. Wouldn't be a problem if every if people thought that ministering to the sick was a service to God and did it with that view in mind, you wouldn't have a problem, would you? Wouldn't have a financial problem if people paid all their taxes because they thought that being dishonest was offending God. Yeah. Wouldn't have a financial problem if people realised that the money they'd been given in government was there in trust and they had to be honest and reliable how they handled it. We have spiritual problems, but as I said, I digress. Anyhow, we're now at chapter 2 of the book of Joel. And Joel's going to the, says to the people, now, okay, guys, you remember that locust plague and how awful it was? And they go, yeah, yeah, we remember, Joel. It was really bad. And Joel says, remember how I called for spiritual change, for national repentance. Yes, Joel, we remember. He said, good, because I'm going to tell you now of something that's going to happen in the future. He said, remember that locust, that locust plague, the big cloud of locusts? Yeah, yeah, we remember. He says, imagine if every locust was a soldier and that was an army coming upon Israel and the people 
oh. You see, God was using that locust plague as a big picture book, a big illustration. My, my kids that watch my videos, they love object lessons. Well, God had created an object lesson with 30 billion pieces, a locust plague. And now he says, through Joel, he says, there's going to be an army coming upon Israel like a locust plague. And he begins to describe them in chapter 2. He says, blow ye the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord cometh for is nigh at hand. In <coughs> a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds of thick darkness as the morning spread upon the mountains, a great people and strong. There hath not ever been the like, neither shall there be any more after it even to the years of many generations. You know, that'll, that, that verse we'll come back into in a moment. This invading army, verse 4, he says, The appearance of them is as the appearance of horses, and like horsemen so they run. Like the noise of chariots on the tops of the mountains shall they leap, like the noise of a flame of fire that devoureth the stubble. That's an interesting one. Any, anybody ever been, like I say, up close and personal with a, a bushfire? You talk, I've talked to some of the fireys in my, my time and they say the sound of a bushfire coming down on you is like an express train, a roaring noise like a train approaching. Like the noise of chariots on the tops of the mountains. Like the noise of the flame that devoureth the trouble. That's the noise that he's talking about of this, this army approaching. And Joel now says, it's the same sort of thing. You've got a... Uh, an army approaching you and he talks about them and, and it's the description verse 9 they run to and fro in the city they shall run upon the wall they'll climb up into the houses they'll enter into the windows like a thief it's it's this imagery of locusts and soldiers mixed together and a, an army that overruns not by great tactics but just by huge numbers simply overwhelms everything there, there is and we go over to verse 12 and we have something interesting happen for he says now also therefore now also saith the Lord turn ye to me with all your heart you see what he's saying with just as the locusts in time before, were a spiritual problem, not an agricultural problem. What you have here with this army approaching Israel is not a military problem. It's a spiritual problem. It says, you don't need rockets. You need repentance. You don't need guns. You need grace. You don't need a militia. You need mercy. You don't need weapons, you need weeping. This is not a war of howitzers, it's a war of the heart. And he says to the people of Israel, when this army comes upon you, when this monstrous, overwhelming flood of soldiers comes upon you, he says, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Now, in, in the 
Middle East, if you wanted to show that you were upset and that, you know, you were really emotionally torn, you would tear your clothing, okay? And you, you'd grab it and you'd rip it. But God says, I don't want the outward show. I don't want you to do this as a display to other people. He says, rend your hearts, not your garments. Because repentance towards God is inward. Turn to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. This is a, a turning to God that's based not on their righteousness. No, no, no. This turning to God is not based on the fact that God owes them. It's based on his grace, for he is gracious, and on his mercy, mercy and merciful, on the fact that he is slow to anger and of great kindness. He's saying to these people, when this army approaches, turn to God in humbleness and realize you deserve nothing and ask for mercy, for grace. And who knows if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him. Who knows? God maybe will be merciful to us. That's what he wants these people to be saying. You'll see this terrible disaster happen. And he says, turn to God. He says, gather the people. Verse 16, sanctify the congregation. Now, you have a look here. There's pretty well everybody. He says, assemble the elders. Yeah, got a few of them. Gather the children. Ooh, we got some of them. Those that suck the breast. We got one of those too. We got, we got everybody here. Even the bridegroom coming out of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. These are the people who are about to get married. Okay? The bridegroom's in, in his, his, uh, his chamber. He's putting on the suit. He's, he's in front of the mirror. And he's saying, yeah, I'm, I'm looking good here. And the bride is in her closet. She's, she's in there with the, the, the girls, you know, getting the hair done and the makeup done. And everything. They're getting ready to be married. And he says, stop that and go out into this assembly to weep and mourn before God. How many of you would have been willing to stop your wedding and, and go and mourn before God for the need of your people? That's a pretty serious sort of situation we're talking about here. He says in verse 17, Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar. That's, that's between the entrance to the tabernacle and the first altar. But they hadn't even got in as far as making an offering, but they were to stop and weep and mourn and let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord. There's a repentance here that is called for, and it's to start at the top with the priests, with the people who are in charge. And let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach, that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is thy God? This army is saying to the nation of Israel, Where's your God? Come on, yeah. What, who, who's going to stop me? So we've got a situation here 
where a nation is invading Israel, an army is invading Israel, and the call is for people to repent and turn to God. Hmm. When is this? Now, Joel's talking about something happening in the future. He's, he said to the people, remember that locust plague? Yeah, right. Well, it's going to be like that. What's coming? What's coming is like that. When's he talking about? Well, we've given a few hints. I want you to have a look at 2.2. Two. Joel 2.2. Two. And it's called a day of darkness, of gloominess, a day of clouds, of thick darkness. As the morning spread upon the mountains, a, gra a people great and strong. But notice what it says here. There hath not been ever the like, neither shall there be any more after it. Even to the years of many generations. He's saying, this is a unique event. Now, I, you know one of the things I really hate when people use English in, incorrectly? When they say something is very unique. There is no such thing as very unique. A thing is either unique or it's not. Unique means there's only one. Only one. Okay? That's... that's the grammar Nazi in me coming out. I really, really hate that. But here is a thing that God is saying that it hath not ever been the like, neither shall there be any more after it. It's unique. There's nothing else quite like this. And where do you find that sort of expression? Okay. Okay. Turn over to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, 21. Matthew 24, 21. Such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. You know what that means? It's unique. It only happens once. Now, if I describe two things... And I say they're both unique. You know what I'm describing? The same thing. This, in Joel, is a description of what is happening in Matthew 24. It is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ coming back as a returning, conquering king to rescue and redeem his people, Israel. He says, I'm going to come back and I'm going to rescue my people. Not based on military might, but based on the fact they repent and turn to me. Now we come to the bit of Joel that everybody knows about. Okay. And that's Joel 2.28. And he says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Also upon the servants and upon the handmaidens in those days will I pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. Okay. You go, oh, oh that, I, I know that bit. I've heard that before. Yes, you have. Over in the book of Acts. 
So let's turn over there to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 14. Acts chapter 2, this is the day of Pentecost. Acts 2.14, but, pe but Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell in Jerusalem, be this known to you and hearken unto my words. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, be, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Sound familiar? Yeah, he's quoting Joel word for word. No problem then. So you, you go, eh, hang on a minute. If, if Pentecost was... Uh, this was happening, and, and Peter was saying, This is what Joel talked about. How can it be in the future? Well, it's it's very simple. Do you know you notice there's one word that Peter doesn't use? He doesn't use the word fulfill. Now, all through the gospels you find references to, to things that happened and they said that it might be fulfilled that which was spoken by the prophets, right? Lots of times, lots of times that, that, that expression is used. It's not used here. You might go, oh, oh, yes, yes it is. No, the only place I find the word fulfilled there is in Schofield's notes. And I'll have you know that I think you know, he's not inspired. Peter never says that this is the fulfilment of Joel's prophecy. What it is, you might say it's the part-filment of Joel's prophecy. Because what we have here is the pouring out of the Spirit upon all flesh and the sons and the daughters prophesying and the young men seeing vision, the old men seeing on the servants. But look at verse 19 of Acts 2. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath blood and fire and vapour of smoke and the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. That didn't happen then. Nowhere in there do we find a description of signs and wonders in, in heaven above on the earth beneath there's no blood and fire and vapor of smoke nothing there see that's coming later this is the start of joel's fulfillment was was pentecost it's now continuing and in the latter days it will be finished and there will be Signs and wonders and darkness, the moon turned to, to blood. Incidentally, people go, ooh, moon being turned to blood. Uh, I've seen it. The aftermath of the big fires, it was a full moon. When the moon came up, you know what colour it was? Blood red. Why? That description of the sun being turned to darkness and the moon to blood, it goes actually, actually dead along with the vapour of smoke. The air and the atmosphere get so full of dust and smoke that you can't see the sun and when the moon comes out, it's red. It's not... It's almost to be expected. Strange thing that people would... Would, would say that that's a very strange... No, that's what you would expect in these situations. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's verse 21. But it's also what's going to happen back over in Joel. Why? Because 
This army will come upon the people of Israel. It'll threaten them and they will turn. They will repent. And what's going to happen is God is going to deal with that army and he's going to rescue his people. But there's something else that's going to happen. You see, we're told that when God rescues his people, all Israel shall be saved. What's going to happen is that God will pour out his spirit upon his people in such a way and with such power that they will all turn to him. Notice the people that are involved in that promise there. There's the sons, the daughters, the old men, the young men, and even the servants and the handmaidens. We're talking about the slaves, basically, the indentured servants, the people with no rights, no, no power, nothing. God will pour out his spirit on them too, and all Israel shall be saved. Wow. That's an, that's, that's a, an amazing situation that Joel is describing. He is describing an army coming on to, to Israel and the people turning in mass repentance to God and God saying, I'll save you. How will that happen? Well, chapter 3 of Joel. Verse 2 of chapter 3 of Joel says, I will gather all nations, I will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat, and there I will plead with them for my people, for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered. You know, the, these people, this nation, this, this coalition, this army came to threaten God's people. And God said, says, yeah, bring it on. You threaten my people. You dare to threaten the apple of my eye. Understand who you're dealing with. You know, there's a... I've seen a couple of people do it and you know it's not going to be pleasant. It, it's when someone sort of, they, they take up a fighting stance and they, they're called in the, the trade pre-attack indicators and one of them is they'll go like this. Yeah, come on. And you know it's going to get very, very nasty there. And what God is doing is saying to these people who would dare to threaten his people, bring it on. And I'll show you what you're dealing with. What's it going to be like? Verse 12 says, Let the heathen be awakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there will I sit to judge all the heathen round about. I've stood on Mount Carmel. You look north from Mount Carmel and it's the Valley of Jezreel. The Jezreel Valley is what it's called. It's also called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. It's a broad, flat, stretched out area and it runs one end all the way up towards Syria and the other end runs all the way down towards the Mediterranean Sea. The Valley of Jezreel, a.k.a. the Valley of Jehoshaphat, a.k.a. the Valley of Megiddo, called in the Hebrew, Haramogedon, Armageddon. Armageddon, it's a surprise when I say this to a few people, Armageddon is not a time, it's a place. A place where God Almighty will say, 
bring it on to all his enemies and he'll deal with them. Now the description here in verse 13 is, Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get ye down, for the press is full, the fats overflow, their wickedness is great. How do you harvest grapes? You ever harvested grapes? Well, we harvest them with clippers. You know, you, you grab a gra- clipper. They didn't do that in Bible times. They used a sickle, which has got a big curved blade on it. Grab the grapes and you'd nip them off with the sickle and put them in a basket to be taken to the wine press. Grapes were harvested with a sickle. What do we find in the book of Revelation? Book of Revelation, chapter 19. Sorry, Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. Revelation 14. Verse 14. 14, 14. Now I looked and behold a white cloud and upon the cloud sat one like the son of man having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the crowd, thrust in thy sickle and reap for the time is come for thee to reap for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven and he also having a sharp sickle Another angel came out from the altar which had power over fire and cried with a loud voice to him that had the sharp sickle saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle on the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. It's a harvest. Now, understand a little little concept here. When God deals with these people who have dared to threaten his beloved, it's not a battle. It's a harvest. It's no more a battle than you say wheat battles against a combine harvester. It doesn't. The wheat can do nothing. It's a harvest. And this coming up is a harvest. What's going to happen? God is going to deal with these people. He's going to deal with this army and his people, his nation, shall be safe forevermore in verse 17 of Joel chapter 3 so ye shall know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion in my holy mountain then shall Jerusalem be holy and there shall no more strangers pass through her any more God is going to have a holy people in a holy city in a holy land they will be his people all that trouble and sorrow be no more for them this is a message basically to Jewish people really that's who Joel's talking to he's saying to the nation of Israel one day you're going to be threatened and when you do Turn to God and he will rescue you. But in the words of that old song, who is on the Lord's side? Which side of the battle will you be on? Will you be one of the ones who come with the Lord and his hosts? Will you be one of the ones who come to rescue a nation 
who repents and turns to God or will you be one of the ones who stand and shake your fist at God and say, no, I won't and are reaped. There's three groups here. There's Israel, there's God's people and those who oppose him. There are no spectators. There is no neutrals. There are no people <coughs> who say, oh, it's not my business, it's not part of me. No, there's no room for that here. It is a decision to be made. Which side are you going to be on? You get to make the choice now. Who is on the Lord's side? Who will face the foe? Who will be his helper? Who for him will go? We have in the book of Joel a man who drew a picture of events that still yet haven't happened. He drew a description of things that we know did. He, he gave a glimpse of what would happen future to him in the day of Pentecost, but a future glimpse yet further of the, the things that would happen when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Now, there's, a, there's an ad for a, uh, a, one of those, you know, heritage background shows, you know, where you came from stuff. And you, you look at it from one side and it's just uh, sheets of paper. But then you turn around and you can see the full picture that's been created. That's what we're dealing with here with the book of Joel. There's bits and pieces in there and it's only when you turn around and you see the full picture that Joel had a little piece happening that Peter said, this is it, it's begun, it started and it's not going to stop until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. It's going to be an interesting time. You know, people talk sometimes about the day of the Lord. Oh, it'll be wonderful. It'll be marvellous. No. You read Joel, it's going to be terrible. It's going to be awful. It's going to be a day of fear and distress and, and just terrible things happening. But that's just part of the picture. The day of the Lord is coming. The day of the righteousness of God will be shown. The day of the rescue of his people is coming. The day that God reveals himself to humanity is on its way. When it does, whose side will you be on? If you want to change sides, now's the time to do it. If you want to be on the winning side, now's the time to do it. If you don't want to be on the side that triumphs, now's the time to do it. If you will turn, repent of your sins. Remember that description there in Joel? Turn to God and he will hear. Why? Because he's merciful. Because he's kind and because he loves you. If you will repent of your sins now, God will be merciful and he will gather you to himself. It's a blessed promise, a blessed thought, and a wonderful future awaits for those who make the right decision who is on the Lord's side. Thank you.